Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Uh, we'll be starting from verse 1. If you'd like to follow along, I encourage you to open your pew Bibles to page 878. And we're right at the very end, very close to the very end. We'll be reading from Revelation 21, verse 1, all the way through chapter 22, verse 5. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels of the gates, and on the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the fifth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the ninth to tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, 
like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood this tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is God's word. So I've been here surprisingly about 13 years, and I've come to know some of you, obviously some far more than others, and some of you I hardly know at all. But, you know, I see a lot of people who have a heart to serve God and a heart to love God, a heart for God. I know some people who are struggling to reach that point or have reached that point and are still struggling with God. But as near as I can tell, as I look at all of you, I don't think there's a single one of you who's actually going to make it into heaven. But don't worry. We see from Revelation 21, actually, that heaven's going to come to us. We're not going there. Or actually, it's not even heaven that's going to come to us. We're going to, there's going to be a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth, and we're going to be on the new earth. But even that misses the point. Because Revelation 21, we read it as though it's talking about the heaven that we're going to go to, and we're not actually going to heaven. The new earth is coming to us. But even that doesn't get it quite right, because we read Revelation 21 as though it's a place that we're going. As if there is a city, a holy city, that we're all going to go to. And I don't think that's the point either. We'll look at it together today. We have to pay careful attention because we've got to get rid of all this other stuff that we already have the thinking. But we'll look at it together. And I think the point of Revelation 21 is not that we're going to go to some place that's bright and glorious. I think I can show you that the point of Revelation 21 is that we are going to be bright and glorious. Not that the place that we're going to is bright and glorious, but, but we are that place. You know, the place is just a metaphor. The place is just a picture of what we're going to become. But before we look at that together, let me tell you why it's important and really who Revelation is really trying to address this morning. In a church like this, we can be really grateful 
that many of us have grown up in strong, stable, secure, loving homes. And even if we fuss at each other, ultimately we really do care for each other and love each other. You know, and many of us can be grateful that our parents worked hard and saved a lot of money. They may not have been rich. They may have been immigrants and kind of struggled when they first got here, but they saved up money and they pushed us hard in, in school and ECAs and then we got into good schools and, and maybe, you know, we didn't even actually suffer through the process. Maybe we found it okay, you know, a little annoying from time to time, but our lives have been pretty comfortable. And many of us have gone to good schools and then got good jobs. And even in a terrible economic climate, maybe, maybe some of us, are, our jobs are in no threat. So life has been pretty easy for some of us. And I'd say that the book of Revelation, and Revelation 21 particularly, is not primarily for you. You know, we can read other people's mail. We can listen to other people's shows and and still get something from it. You can get something from Revelation 21, even if your life has been easy. But recognize that Revelation 21 really hasn't been written, wasn't written for those whose lives are easy. It's written for a different group of people altogether. It's written for people who struggle with two things. It's written, first of all, for people who struggle with life. Now, by now, we've been working our way through Revelation, and if you've been here, you probably realize you probably will never forget that Revelation was written to people who were under persecution. Their property had been confiscated, because that's how it worked in those days. Some of them had been locked in jail. A couple had been killed. And they knew that other people might be killed. Their lives were hard because of their faith. Now, in America, our lives will never really be anywhere near that hard because of our faith. So we have to take a, a, a step further back, but, but it's still, this passage is still relevant to those whose lives are hard for other reasons. Maybe you didn't grow up in a secure, loving home. And maybe your parents split when you were young. And, you know, it's, it's sometimes despite one of your parents' best efforts. Maybe they were divorced against their will and you grew up without a mother or father. And research demonstrates, a 30-year longitudinal study demonstrates that that is hard. And sometimes people bounce back, but more often than not, people struggle with that for 30 years or more into adulthood. Maybe you feel like your life will never be whole because you grew up without a mom or dad. Or maybe it wasn't divorce, maybe it was an early death. I've got a friend who's, oh, in his 30s, maybe 40s. His mother died when he was in his early teens, and he never got over it. I mean, he still carries that kind of, that still affects how he relates to his life today. Or maybe when you were growing up somehow, you just didn't have a lot of friends and you never knew why. Maybe you got a suspicion that maybe you got a personality, you know, dysfunction. I mean, you know, maybe you got something going on. You don't know. No one's ever told you. You don't know. But all this time, you know, maybe people think you're quiet and shy and you're not really. You want to have friends. You just don't know how to go about doing it. And you've been walking through life with that kind of thing. Maybe you're single and are happy about it. 
and this sermon's not for you, and this passage is not really so you, secondarily, maybe not primarily, maybe you're single and you don't really want to be anymore. I had a friend recently who got married for the first time at 62. She didn't want to be married. She didn't want to be single until she was 62. You know, maybe you'll find yourself in that position one day. Or, said quietly and gently, maybe you got married with these great hopes that we all have when you walk down that aisle. And now you're thinking... Do I kill him or is he going to kill me? No, I mean, obviously not that bad. But maybe now you're just, you know, maybe now you're pretty disappointed. And you're wondering, how long will this go like this? Will we ever get back to what we used to be? Maybe you've had a child with learning disabilities. Or maybe you have adult children and you're worried about the dumb decisions they might make that will destroy, that hurt their lives. One of the toughest things I know, maybe you have a same-sex attraction and you love Jesus. And you wonder, as your friends pair off, get married, have families, you wonder, are you ever going to have a friend? You know, a close relationship to last you through life as all your friends pair off and get occupied with their Friends, what's going to happen to you? In a time like this, it's underemployment maybe. Maybe you'll never get a job that you trained for, in the field that you trained for, at the level you trained for. Maybe it's unemployment for months or years. Maybe it's not your private life. Maybe you had a dream of doing something significant for Jesus. Maybe you work your job and, you know, that's 40 or 50 hours a week. And then you thought, well, maybe, maybe I can use that job to influence people for Jesus. Or maybe in my spare time after that job, I can influence people for Jesus. And the years roll by, five years, ten years, and you see people go overseas for Jesus. And you, you try and serve Jesus here and, and nothing really ever connects. And you're discouraged or frustrated by it. There can be any number of things that we struggle with. Now, the book of Revelation is written for people who are struggling. They're struggling with a particular circumstance, persecution. But it's still relevant to us who struggle with other circumstances. But here's the thing. I don't think it's the circumstances that create the biggest struggle. Here's what I think creates the biggest struggle. You know, the circumstances, maybe you can rise above it. The circumstances you pray, oh, we sang this song, right? And this song captures it really well. And, and it dis, does capture our experience for many of us. Here, but here's the biggest struggle. The song goes like this. I called your name and you heard my cry. Out of the grave and into life, my heart is yours. My soul is free. Maybe it's not the circumstances. You know, you hit circumstances and you struggled and you called out to God. You were desperately needing a job and God provided a job. You were desperately wanting a spouse and God provided a spouse. You called out God's name and he heard your cry. And out of the grave and into life he brought you. And you can say, my heart is yours, my soul is free. This passage really is not primarily for people like that, that have that experience. They struggle, they call out to God and God answers. This passage is primarily for those people who have a long-term struggle 
and they call out to God. And he doesn't answer. You know, there was a time, thinking about same-sex attraction. There was a time when uh, these special seminars would be held and they'd say, oh, pray and God will deliver you and, and they have uh, restorative or rehabilitative therapy to help people who are attracted to the same gender be attracted to another gender. The reality is people are willing to admit it now. The reality is most people will never recover from that, would never change from that. Maybe we can, in church, say never recover from that. It's going to be a long, hard, faithful walk. Maybe you reach your 50s and you lose your job. Maybe in your 30s it's easy to change fields or it's easy to recover another job. But in your 50s, not so hard. I said not so easy. Maybe it'll be years and years of unemployment. And God won't answer. You know, Revelation was written to people like that. Because here we are. Remember, they were persecuted. They had confiscation of goods. Some of them died. And Revelation chapter 6 pictures the dead, before the altar of God, in heaven, pleading with him. How long, O oh Lord, until you avenge us, until you avenge our deaths. And what does God say to them? Not yet. More are going to die. Revelation 21 is written to people like that. Maybe you remember being surprised as I was after Mother Teresa died. And her spiritual mentor published their letters. And there was a big controversy about whether he should have done that. But, but here's the dominant theme that came over in Mother Teresa. You know, it's maybe some of you are too young to remember Mother. Mother Teresa did things that amazed the world. She cared for the sickest and the dirtiest and the poorest people in the world. India. Recovering those going in the street to give a home to those who were dying for the last few days of their lives. Spent a whole life doing this. And what was the dominant theme of her relationship with God? We found out only after she died. We found out. She felt that God was distant from her. Never connecting with her. This Revelation 21 is written for people like that. I'm a little hesitant to tell you this story, but it's part of life, so I'll tell you this. Christianity Today magazine, leading evangelical magazine, this week was reporting on the aftermath. There have been a lot of investigations now into missionary schools. You know, back 20, 30 years ago, when people went into missions, they sent their kids away to a boarding school because they couldn't get schooled in English in the country they were in. They'd send them away. Now, our kids, we were able to keep them home. But a lot of people had to put, a lot of missionaries serving God had to put their kids in missionary schools. And like anywhere else, pedophiles managed to weed their way into those, some of those, some of those missionary schools. And now there's investigations going on now and missionary agencies are trying to figure out how many kids were impacted and, and how to help the kids recover from it. But can you imagine what it's like for the parents to know that they were doing their best to serve God and they trusted their kids, not just to the school, but to God. 
or what it's like for the kids who were told by the predators, you can't say anything about this or your parents will have to leave the field and God will be disappointed in them and God will be disappointed in you. This is what Revelation 21 is written for. People who are struggling, but not just in life, but people who are struggling with God, people who are turning to God and say, deliver me. And God says, not yet. This is what Revelation 21 is written to address. Revelation 21 promises us that God will deliver, and his deliver, deliverance will be glorious. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Let's look at it together. John is trying to capture, trying to express how glorious God's deliverance is going to be. And he struggles. How do you communicate this? It's beyond anything we can imagine in this life. So he has to take three pictures from our lives now. Three pictures that we all know. He takes, first of all, he takes the picture of a wedding to explain some dimension of what the future will be like. And then he takes the picture of a cathedral city, a holy city, to explain some dimension of what the future will be like. And then he takes a beautiful pastoral scene, like was in the background of those slides we saw earlier. A beautiful pastoral scene to capture another part of dimension, another dimension of what the future will be like. And none of these are mixed metaphors. They don't fit smoothly together, but he jams them together because one metaphor is not enough to explain how great and glorious the future will be. Not heaven in the future, and not even earth in the future, but how great and glorious we will be. And how great and glorious our relationship with God will be in the future. So we'll look at these three metaphors in turn. First of all, the meta metaphor of a wedding day. Chapter 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. You see, it's not us going to heaven, it's coming, the city is coming down from heaven. But notice how he describes this city. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Why does he compare our future to a bride? Then he goes on, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You see, what he does here is he describes our future in terms of a bride and then in terms of a marriage. Only a marriage not like any we've experienced on earth, maybe. This will be a marriage where there is no more... He will wipe away every tear from the eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, or no more pain. Why does he describe our future in terms of a bride? Those of you who are married, think back to your wedding day. What it symbolizes. Now, it may not be what you experienced on your wedding day, particularly if you were the bride. Pity the brides. You know, get up early. 
to oh, do all that makeup and all that hair stuff and all that dressing. Men have it a lot easier get up late, throw on a pair of, well, throw on a tux, but it's, it takes 10 minutes for a man to get ready. It takes six hours for a woman to get ready for a wedding day. Maybe for you, it's not the wedding day that captures the intimacy here that, that he described. Maybe for you, it's the honeymoon. Finally, you've got all this time together and peripheral activities. Or maybe, you know, the way you guys do things now, we didn't do this in my day, maybe the way you guys do, maybe it was that proposal, that evening of that proposal, we you know you did all this elaborate stuff and the candles and the flowers and the special dinner and the special location and the friends conspired and the family conspired and you all did this fancy stuff, you know. Here's the point of the image. Wherever it is, if it's the wedding day, if it's the proposal, if it's the honeymoon, here's the point. He grabs hold of this notion of a bride, beautifully attired, to communicate the depth of affection and warmth and intimacy that we will have with God one day. To my mind, the best, my favorite time in a wedding, and I've mentioned this once before years ago, my favorite time in a wedding is when the bride comes through that back door and the groom is coming up here because everybody turns back and looks at the bride. And I can, no one notices, I, I will look at the groom. Because we got a lot of soft-hearted guys in this church. You know, and the bride comes walking up that aisle. And we got a lot of guys that get a little tear in their eye. You know, and they wouldn't normally do that for anything, you know. Kill their puppy, okay, but, but you know, they see that, you know, they see this bride coming up here and they think, wow. And the part of it that breaks my heart is thinking about that man. I'm glad I don't have a daughter. Thinking about that father bringing his daughter down for the last time. She's his. He's the dominant man in her life. And now, now he's going to turn her over to a husband. And you think, oh, so sweet. And why does John refer us to this bride? He says, that's what it's going to be like. It's not you're going somewhere. It's not like some place is coming to you. Who cares about the place? What, this is what's coming. It's like a marriage. Because that's the warmest, most intimate thing he can think of to compare what our future will be with God. Maybe he isn't listening. Maybe he won't act now. Maybe he won't deliver us now. But here's the promise. He's going to deliver us. And when he delivers us, it's going to be sweet. It's going to be like that wedding you dreamed about, even if you haven't managed to achieve it yet. And then he brings in another image, because that sweetness of that marriage, that's not enough. It can't grab it. So he throws in another image to capture another dimension of it. And he compares us to a cathedral city. He, he talks again about the city. Take a look at chapter 29, verse 9. Come, I will show you the bride. And then he immediately switches to the new metaphor. He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high. Jerusalem was on a mountain. And he showed me the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down, again coming down out of heaven from God to earth. And then he describes this. And it shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall, 12 gates. This thing is 12,000 stadia in length. And width and height. 12,000 stadia. This thing is 1,500 miles long, wide, high. This new city 
is 300 times as high as Mount Everest. The, the city gate is made out of a single pearl. The majestic 60 foot, 80 foot, who knows, an enormous gate made out of a single pearl. It's not going to have guild on the dome like the Capitol building downtown. It's going to have solid gold streets. Now again, I told you he's not talking about a place. Because what is this place? Verse 9. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He's not talking about a place. He's talking about us. We are going to be like that. We are going to be glorious. And he can't compare us. He, said, he can't say, well, you're going to be 12 feet tall. You're going to be you know, muscular and all that. Because it's not big enough. You know, what's the image of a cathedral city? You know, maybe some of you have been to Europe and you really can't capture it anymore, even if you go to a cathedral city. If you've seen St. Paul's in London, if you've seen Notre Dame in Paris, if you've seen St. Basil's in Moscow, it still can't capture it. Because when those things were built in the 1200s, they were the only multi-story structure. Everything else was flimsy wood, a little thatch. And, you know, there's a PBS special about the cathedrals of Europe. Miles and miles, tens of miles away, you'd start walking. And you'd see, the only thing you would see on the horizon is this enormous cathedral. And as you get closer, it gets bigger. It dominated the entire countryside. What's his point in comparing us to a cathedral? We are going to be extraordinarily glorious. Like no cathedral city in this life. We are going to be spectacular. In fact, he says in verse 22, there's no temple in that city because the Lord God Almighty and his Lamb are in the temple. God will dwell in our midst. We won't need, to be, we won't need a temple. We are, God will dwell in our midst. And, and we will have the glory of God shining around us. We will be illumined. We will be the glory of God. So the first image, we're going to have this deep intimacy with God. The second image, we're going to be transformed by God's glory. Whatever struggles we have now will be nothing in that day. Because we will be transformed. We will be glorious. We will be like Jesus because we will see him as he is. And that's still not enough for John. We have this intimacy. We have this glory. But there's still got to be something more to it. And so he compares it in a third respect. He brings in a third imagery. And you take a look at chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of life, as clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and the Lamb. Where does this river flow? Verse tw chapter 22, verse 2. This river flows, this mighty river flows down the middle of Main Street, down the middle of the great, city, the great street of the city. Have you ever seen a river flow down the middle of any Main Street in any city? You know, there's too much going on here for him to fit it all together. These are mixed metaphors. But we're not just in spiritual intimacy with God. We're not just glorious. There's something else. He has to bring in a third image, even if it clashes with the others, he has to bring in a third image to capture what our future will be. And here is the image he chose. 
One much like the one on the PowerPoint background we saw. Think of this, the most beautiful natural imagery, the most beautiful nature scene you've ever been in. That's what he describes our future like. Or think of it like this. Israel, more or less desert. And down here comes, uh, and, and often the cities would be supplied. The only water you'd have is in a, a pool, a cistern, that they hew out a rock in order to collect rainwater. And he says, oh, it won't be like that. It, it'll be like a mighty river going down the middle of the city. And it will bring, the, the, there'll be the tree of life on each bank. It'll be a restoration of Eden. And there'll be 12 trees. And every month a different fruit because there's 12 trees. And the leaves of the trees will heal. There won't be any hunger. There won't be any crying. There won't be any more suffering. There won't be any of these wounds from life. Because God will heal all those with this mighty river that flows down this majestic, glorious city as we experience spiritual intimacy with God. So let's go back to where we started from. I mean, we can all take heart from this picture of the future because our future is going to be far more glorious than our present. But I don't think it's going to resonate. If you've had an easy life so far, it probably won't resonate with you. How do you care about heaven when you've had pretty much heaven on earth? How do you care about a glorious future when you've had a glorious present? But let me talk particularly to those of you who haven't had a glorious present to those of you who for some reason or another have had a struggle. Maybe your life has been comfortable and the only struggle has been because you were born melancholic. And, and I don't, we can't blame you for that. You were just born sad. And every good thing that happens, you see the dark underbelly of life. And, and we can't fault you for that because you're not doing that on purpose, right? And then people say, you quit being moody. You're not moody on purpose. You don't want to be unhappy. You are born that way. And maybe you can work at it, but you're never going to be happy. You're not really happy, a little bit better. Ask me how I know someday. Or maybe your life has been genuinely difficult. And you bear the wounds and you cover them up and you hide them from yourself maybe to get through life. Or you hide them from, at least from the people around you. Maybe you are disappointed with, or you're in struggle. And not just struggle with life, but struggle with God because he didn't make it better. This is God's promise to all of us. He will. He will make it better. Maybe not today. Maybe not next month. Maybe not next year. But he's going to make it better. He's going to make it, Revelation 21, better. He's going to make it as good as the best marriage you ever dreamed you could have. He's going to make it as glorious far more glorious than the most brilliant temple on earth. He's going to make it better than Jerusalem ever was, better than Mecca ever could be. He's going to make it better. He's going to make it more alluring and more life-giving than the most beautiful nature scene you've ever seen in your life. This is the promise of God to us. Not that one day we will go away to heaven. Nor even one day that heaven will come down to us. But that we, with God, will be in deep spiritual intimacy. That we, 
with God will be glorious. That we with God will be life-giving. Now we're going to do something a little bit different as we close this service. Revelation 21 is not trying to aim at our knowledge. It tells us some things, but it's really trying to aim at our heart. What we're going to do at the close of this service is we're going to pray together. I'm going to ask the worship team to come, and they'll play an instrumental at first. But what I want you to do as we pray together, we'll have a minute or two of meditation. What I want you to do is this. Enter into the emotions of your life. If your life is a struggle, enter into the emotions of that. What is it that you struggle with? Talk to God about that. God, this is the thing I have. And this is the thing I've been asking you to deliver me from. This is the thing that you haven't delivered me from. Call out to God in the quietness of your heart as we meditate together. And then what we've done is, as I was working on this sermon, I listened to a pop song on the radio, and I thought, boy, that sounds a lot like Revelation 21. So one of our members of our worship team, Sarah Song, redid the song a little bit just to make sure it, it fits. And really, the worship team will sing this song as God's word back to us, a paraphrase, if you will, of Revelation 21. So as we go to prayer, first thing we do, is talk to God about our struggle, not just with life, but with Him, if we have one. And then we listen to God talk to us through the words of Revelation 21 and the words of this song. Let's pray together.
struggle, when we struggle not only with life, but when we struggle with the fact that you don't alleviate our struggle. May your word come to us in the promise 
that one day your home will be with us and one day our home will be in you. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.